criminal magic. Chapter 7. Sunday, 1702, GMT plus 8. When looking for allies, it is wise to be careful what you wish for. As Coordinator finished her quick summary of the events in Portland, the secretary sat still for a moment, wrapping his fingertips gently and rhythmically on the tabletop. Do you know anything about Cavalli music? he asks, pointing an index finger at Coordinator. Okay, she says. Well, I'm absolutely certain that you have some fascinating cultural knowledge to impart, and I would love to hear about it sometime over dinner. I really don't think this is the time for... Kieran holds up the same hand to interrupt her. Always, always, in such a rush, he scolds. Sometimes to address a problem, you must first step aside and see all that surrounds it. I can understand that you are angry. You've been put in a difficult situation. But this is serious business. The accounting of it may be less direct than the one you are presently inclined to apply. Please, bear with me for a moment. Coordinator's eyes flash, but she nods in acquiescence. There is something in what her old friend says, and she has never suffered as a result of deferring to Kieran's wisdom. Very well, he begins. Cavalli music is a Sufi practice, a method of worship conducted through musical improvisation. What makes it relevant here is that Cavalli provides a context for these improvisations, a kind of boundary within which the participants can express states of mystical love. This basic structure is always the same, but the improvisations within may never be repeated. Coordinator lifts an eyebrow in a quizzical glance. And? I believe that the same is true of all direct actions on the transnational level. The secretary's head bobs as he muses. Executive kidnap, industrial espionage, asset negotiation, all consistent external forms with improvised case-by-case interiors that may never be repeated. What we may be dealing with in the present case is an actor or group of actors using a familiar form but with an improvised core designed to deceive. The opposite of Cavalli, if there can be such a thing, a political practice intended to create confusion through familiarity and skepticism. Is this a roundabout way of telling me that you don't believe one of the other petroleum transnats was involved in this? Coordinator asks. The secretary folds his hands lightly in his lap. Rushing again, perhaps, he says but more or less on the mark. Okay, look, coordinator straightens in her chair. Although I didn't find anything directly showing that they were behind it, I think it is suggestive that BP Royal Shell was after Lynn for some time. I mean, we both know you can't trust these guys, and their security is top-notch. What if they have just hidden the facts spectacularly well? Kieran sits back in his chair. I'm afraid your data set is not entirely complete. Well, then what the hell am I here for? coordinator says, hitting the desktop lightly with both hands. If you've already got all the answers, I would appreciate a heads up. It's my ass on the line here, you know. Sadly, I have fewer answers than questions, the secretary says with conciliation. Such is often the nature of our work. I do have some rather strong indications, however. As you are aware, better than most, transnationals of all descriptions have occasion to use the services of local collectives regardless of ideological difference. There is much call for specialized applications and so little in-house talent nowadays. This lack of skill has provided us significant revenue over the past few years, as well as certain other opportunities. I assure you that our intelligence on the petroleum transnets is quite good. We feel certain we would have seen this coming if it had been internal. Well, okay, coordinator says. So then what do we make of this? My dear, the director looks intensely into her eyes. I believe someone is interested in trying to start a corporate war between the few remaining petroleum transnationals and that this purposefully bungled kidnap is the wedge they are using to hold open the door. He waits several beats before going on. For what purpose, I do not know, but I feel reasonably certain that one could think of this event as the first step in a concrete strategy. 
And then before coordinator can muster a response, he adds, It might comfort you to a small bit to know that not everyone on the central committee agrees with me. Oh great, and whoever it is trying to roll up some collectives while they're at it? Why not knock down some serious pins too? What comes next? She could feel the need for a workout crowding in, more oxygen. Her nerves were reactive and raw. That may be incidental, although I'm glad you brought it up, the secretary says, leaning forward onto the desk, seeming to rest the full weight of his tired body on his elbows. Since you are the most logical choice for a particularly urgent collective assignment. Oh, here we go. Coordinator sees it coming. No rest, no exercise, no slack. I should have taken myself on a nice vacation. The executive pulls a dossier from his case and slides it to her side of the table. Its tab reads, Answer. Dreamtime. Luz led as they descended the rubble-strewn staircase, leading to the cool, earthen-scented innards of the Temple Mount of Chavin de Wantar. It was late in the evening of their third day. The wobble of a candle threw a halo around Luz as she eased her way down the narrow corridor. They passed a trapezoidal void whose portal was a couple of feet off the floor in the wall. Yesterday, Luz had taken them into the guts of the old temple structure, and this hole was where they had entered the maze. One could crawl on hands and knees for hours in the darkened interior of this huge rock and earthen mound, moving from one level to another without ever having the room to stand. These are drain paths, Luz had explained. See how the stones on the bottom overlap to make a downhill flow? This is how the water from the reservoir made its way through the pututu, or horn, that we are inside of. So this place turned into a huge whistle when the shaman or whatever dropped water into that pool at the top? Kali's astonishment was undisguised. Many believe so, she said. Some think that the whole of this place was an instrument built to summon the gods. It is like a giant flute. Water flooded down these chutes and pushed air at the bottom vents. Some say that depending on which chute was used, the tones would vary. They crawled into an intersection where four shafts converged. Look, she pointed to the stone tiles under their knees. Each one of these small tunnels comes down from above at a different angle. Depending on which one the water comes through, the tone would change. They sat in that place for a while, each in turn howling into one or another of the tight-waisted shafts leading off into the dark from where they sat. Answer could close his eyes and picture the scene almost as if flying above the ancient city. Below, close within the reach of the U-shaped arms of the temple, a ring of sculpted deities surveyed the polished courtyard from raised benches. White granite stairs glowed under the open glare of a remote sun. Tenoned heads of feline protectors, their lithic fangs and lips curled, leapt in ranks from the face of massive stone walls as if projected into the space from nowhere. A low bellow resonated over the flats, resounding across the courtyard before dissipating into the chilled air where temple waters flowed into the bite of the Mosna. Constructed as a celestial compass, the plaza was a crosshatch of polished black slabs sunk into the meeting place floor orienting the amphitheater east and west. On all sides, mythic stone messengers, speakers of power and wisdom, vengeance and blood, raised conch shell pututu to their mouths to summon something from places where it might better remain unmolested. Answer saw it all, set on the rocky stage of the Tinki, the intersection of things. Here, on the stone flat of ancient temple grounds, was a true intersection, a place where even now rivers join, forces of nature collide and merge, where coincidence between light and dark, high and low, marry in chaotic harmony. He knew within himself that this magical ancient place, Chavin de Wantar, was a real junction of power on earth, a place where the flux of spirit arcs and explodes into reality. Answer, dude. Kali reached over and shook him back to the time and place of rock tunnels and cold kneecaps. 
Hey, listen up, man. Lou says tomorrow we're going to sit in the gallery of offerings. You hear that? That's where we're going to take our trip, Jack. That's where it's all going to happen. Don Pedro awaits. He rubbed his hands together, feeling the friction of wishing warm his palms. Don Pedro. His stomach growled as his body experienced a clear memory of indigestible torments. Luz told them that Huachama, the San Pedro cactus, is a sacred passkey that demands much of the body and mind. Though it is related to peyote, it differs in that to achieve the same distance from, or perhaps proximity to, reality, a person must ingest significantly greater volumes of this plant to break free of the customary fiction that is our daily life. Gathered from fertile rock niches, the four-ribbed cactus made up the majority of Luce's potion. Is that the same plant that's all over the valley walls? Collie thought he recognized it. No. Luce smiled up at him as she began preparing the brew. It's from the same family, but the majority of those you can see have more than four ribs. These are from the one called Four Winds, or Four Roads. This is the most powerful of magical herbs. I am mixing it with plants we call Kunduru. Each of these contains its own magical qualities. When I am finished, we will drink the brew called Chimora. With these helping agents mixed in, the body of the herb will lift us to a place where we can find what we were looking for. She described what she was doing as she worked. First, you take off the spines, then slice the plant like bread. After that, we will boil, along with this mix of other plants, for seven hours. Then we will pass the liquid through some cloth and begin to sip. You will feel a sleep steal over you, a sense of tranquility, maybe dizziness or sickness might come. Finally, you will have a great clarity. You both know the power since you have traveled. You should not be unsettled if time and space disappear. The preparations occupied Luz for an entire afternoon. Late in the second day of their return to Chavin, she appeared at the door of the room they had rented in a local home. Tomorrow night we will visit the ancients, she told them, as she settled on one of the worn horsehair mattresses impaled on a wire bed frame. She braced her spine in a corner and pinned them with a penetrating stare. This time you will be naked before them, she said. You must free yourselves from any ideas about what is coming. It will not do to step into this journey with bags of expectations. She fixed her eyes on them. Be sure you are ready for the work. Her ordinarily small voice carried a heavy tone. You have met this teacher before. He was dressed in the clothes of peyote. She risked a slight smile, as if she had heard a private joke. So you know, he is not one you should visit very often. Answer, hunched against the wall, chin cradled on his knees, arms wrapped around his legs. She is strange, this girl. Tall and thin, cheekbones that look like they're from Asia, eyes deeply recessed eyes, glowing with the intensity of fire opal. To his mind, she seemed to miss nothing. Why are you with us? I mean, apart from dreams, premonitions, why are you guiding us? My future is tied to yours, Luz responded after a moment. Leading you is in the middle of my own path. So we're hooked up, the three of us, in some cosmic way. Collie's upper body rocked back and forth. He looked over at Answer, seeming somehow relieved. So that's good. Stoked. No problem. That's good, right? Answer understood. He knew there was nothing more. It reminded him of the sorrow of Philosopher's Gold. He remembered his mother telling him, The problem with God seems to be that it really is all things to all people. He scarfed his upper lip with his lower teeth, slowly releasing the soft tissue and wishing he could see into the future. Sunday, 1806, GMT plus 8. Oh no, Coordinator shakes slightly as she eyes the folder. This is not happening. Look, this guy's a lone wolf. He's a solo act. I have just seen his idea of teamwork, and I did not like it. He can take care of himself, whatever's going on. That's his main liability. Team member? I don't think so. The secretary looks at her intently, then draws a quietly deep breath. 
This is one of the reasons he hates being an administrator. No matter how bright some people are, working with them is still a wrestling match. Whatever your personal feelings or judgments about the individual, he is still a collective member who is in considerable danger, much greater than even a man with gifted analytic talent could realize, more perhaps than even you realize. The administrative function is now in working order. Like it or not, you are in this same boat. House intelligence suggests that both of you are subjects of an ongoing targeting scheme. He sees the slight dilation in coordinator's pupils. Good, I have your attention. Two local members of your Portland team are either dead or missing. It is certain that neither you nor self nor this man answer are safe, but you at least know that you are unsafe. He may not. We must resolve this situation, and we need as much information as possible to do it. Need I remind you that this type of intervention on behalf of collective members is an obligation, personality conflicts aside. Coordinator nods resignedly as she slides the folder to one side. What exactly am I supposed to do with that? The secretary drifts back from the table, draws his legs up until they are crossed on the chair. Glad to see such unbridled enthusiasm, my dear. His tone is droll, but amused. We are presently developing an interest in some goings-on in a remote part of northern Colombia. This interest revolves around our questions with regard to Mr. Lin. You have heard of the Chavez pipeline? Yeah, the joint venture between FARC and the Venezuelans. I I've heard. If the Financial Times is right, it sounds like the development swath is going to displace just about every remaining tribal group that's in northern South America, not to mention wiping out most of the non-human species as well. Precisely. There have been quite a few, his fine fingers dither a crochet of consideration in the air above his lap. Let us say rumblings in certain communities. Your primary assignment will be to find our troublesome associate, warn him of the jeopardy he is in, and then get up to northern Colombia where you will establish contact with our on-site people in the Ecotage community. Our present intelligence is not as good as it needs to be, and we feel it's essential to sharpen our information resources there. Okay. Coordinator's hands rise as she pretends to ease her tired eyes, keeping her fingertip massage going as she begins speaking. No need to let this man see her true intent in her eyes. Her tone is all business, betraying none of the begrudging and highly unprofessional annoyance simmering in her head with a voice that shouts, Fuck that guy, he's nothing but trouble, why should anyone, let alone the collective, care if he eats shit and dies? You choose to be on your own, well, okay, you're on your own. Instead, she leads with an open face. How do I find him? She says blandly. I mean, we've got full zero on him. Ah, the secretary exclaims with a smile, fishing into his case and withdrawing another dossier, which he hands to coordinator. There we may be able to help a bit. You reported that he was able to secure your sat cell number. This certainly seemed like a highly unusual development. So we data mined the satellite traffic during the period around Lynn's takedown and uncovered an unauthorized ping of the communications database at almost exactly the same time. Too close to be a coincidence. It seems our man has not been out technical fluency after all. The intrusion was very well done, but the hack was direct, so it was obviously done on short notice. For that reason, tracks couldn't be totally covered. Wait a minute, coordinator fidgets with the file. This guy trademarks is a total Luddite. No technology. Basic H, all that. You're saying he's got technicals on tap? Like an assistant? Not an assistant, exactly. Maybe more like a colleague. Director's tone is bright. Interestingly, if our guess is right, he's ex-collective also. We believe the contact is a man named Carly Gray. We understand he is in Portland, operating well out of the loop. Our probability analysis suggests that it's unlikely the identity answer would have given him more information than absolutely necessary. This alone demonstrates regard for an old friend's health, I suppose. We know Gray started a clinic in the river camps after he dropped out of collective service. The depth of his current relationship with the figure answer is unknown to us. 
but clearly the connection is to some degree intact. Hopefully this will lead you where you need to go. Coordinator takes Gray's file and begins scanning quickly through the surveillance photos and other high points. Huh, she pouts. Certainly could explain a few things. He was a real baller hacker once upon a time. Do we know why we lost him? The question is an idle inquiry. You can always use people with these skills. The secretary shrugs. Idealist. He decided collective notions of direct action, while effective, were unethical, even if its goals were sound. He does not appear to accept collective donations, although I'm certain he suspects that some of the monies he receives through religious groups are not as clean as he might like. He has a mission to support, after all. Well, for all that, Mr. Clean's got some pretty rough friends if this guy answers any proof. Standing, she stretches. When I find him, I'll have plenty of questions. When do I leave? Avi will help set it up. You do, of course, have our full support, and I remind you once again that as far as we know, you are still also a target yourself. He glances at his watch. It is a beautiful piece of quasi-accurate ancient jewelry. He allows himself. It is a simple way to remind a person that time is fiction. He rises with an authority that clearly signals the end of a meeting. Be cautious. It is a directive. I suspect we are approaching a tipping point in transnational relations, and I am personally depending on you for data critical to our understanding of what evolutionary path it is that is taking shape. Coordinator gives a crisp nod of acceptance. You take care of yourself as well, Kieran. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, remember? Play. He whispers the word with a wistful reverence as he makes for the door. When next we meet, you'll have to refresh me on the concept. Don't worry about me. Most of the sharks I swim with are toothless. Bureaucrats, you know. Sometimes I think we are as bad as they are. With that, he turns and disappears into the vastness of the house hallway. Dream time. Darkness streams, rolling over answer with the heaviness of flowing water, saturating the stone room with a thickness he could practically touch. Under his haunches, the floor pushed up at him, swelling as the place itself breathed, adjusting to the charged atmosphere living within those inside. The three of them had been here for... he was not sure how long. They drank the vile bitters of Luce's brew and descended the stairway in order to come to this place hours before daylight had even suggested itself. And then things began to happen. Sounds of breathing, their own, undulated through the chamber, Chords of tone appeared in the air as floating scarves of supple color, silken wraiths whose movements were as layered and languorous as breeze-ruffled sheets. A sudden, fugitive taste, sharp, robust, unlike anything familiar, took control of his tongue. It was the taste of blue. He knew this because he could see the evidence hanging, sifting through dark air as nickel-sized checkerboards of blue and black and drifting into his open mouth to land on his tongue like wafers at a savage mass. Laughter rose inside, as he realized his mind had momentarily wound itself in a paroxysm of confusion, trying to categorize the new and unique taste of a color as being like a flavor in the mind's palate library. A joke. A really funny joke, that, since it was not like anything, not else, just at all. It was just the flavor of blue. Collie was absorbed examining a tumbled group of bones that appeared on a shelf next to his left elbow. His rational mind, or what he could remember of it, knew that there was no shelf, no nothing, in fact, but the dimpled texture of granite blocks. But facts didn't matter. He felt himself rise, walk toward another shelf. Oh, it's moved. As he adjusted to that truth, he found a lump of stone had formed in his left hand. It was the size and shape of a grinding pestle, the only difference being that this stone was in the shape of a femur, the surface covered with shallow incised carvings of fanged creatures with wings and fierce claws. He advanced on the newly replaced shelf. There he found, lying amid the bone fragments, a low stone bowl, holding a burning tallow. 
its dark surface held carvings of a shape that looked like the letter S. This new light source cast a disturbing, furtive glow through the space. He saw that he was alone, completely cut off from the world. How could that be when he could hear the breathing of the others he knew were there? Fucking intense, man, was all he could manage to mumble to himself. He bent to look at the bones and set his stone weapon alongside the remains on the shelf. This, the Galleria de Ofendras, is not a place tourists linger. Luz held herself quietly erect as she knelt with her back toward the wall, facing the low entryway to the cubicle. Even without light, she knew where the gap in the wall was. She could feel currents of air scuttling across her facial skin as she breathed the space in, in harmony with the rest of the pyramid, not uncertain about the place she sits. When the archaeologists first came upon this room and its contents, they were initially uncertain about the origin of the bones they had found littering the floor and stuffed into the hundreds of ceramicware vessels apparently stored there as offerings. Their uncertainty did not last. These were human remains, almost all of them from juveniles below the age of puberty. Every one of them showed signs of having been processed clean by human teeth. Ritual cannibalism was certainly practiced in this place, and there was no evidence of fire or fire pits within the pyramid structure, so the sacrifice must have been consumed raw. Luz knows about raw meat. She cannot help but know, as she kneels in the dark of the gallery of offerings, her body vibrating in tune with the electrical amphetamine current of the magical cactus. She recalls vividly how she had come to know what certain meats are for. On a soul-shrinking gray winter day when she was ten, her grandmother came to take her for a walk. They traipsed along a flooding creek, stopping to admire water fern and the tiny birds that dove into the rapids, merging with fish the size of pencil leads. The two of them strolled until they reached a narrows, where the cliffs rose sharply and jammed the water from above into a glistening waterfall that plummeted into a box canyon where they stood. Holding the young girl's hand, the old woman slipped off her sandals and waded into the pool of icy water at the base of the cascade. Luz followed, timid of the freezing wet, but drawn on by trust. The two navigated the slippery rock bottom as they moved carefully across the pool. At one point, Luz's grandmother was up to her chest and had to float her grandchild by the arms to keep the body above water. Upon reaching the far side of the pool, they passed beneath the curtain of falling water and stepped onto a rock ledge that lay just below the surface. The girl was very cold, but afraid to complain of it to the older woman. "'Shivering will warm you,' was all her grandmother allowed. They stood shivering in the mist of the cascade for some unknowable space of time before the old lady said anything. Luz, are you hungry? She whispered. Yes, Luz said, her belly suddenly aching for food. But Matamo, she chirped, we have nothing. Kneel and reach beneath my feet, child. Luz obeyed, kneeling in the frigid water and bending to reach beneath the place where her grandmother stood. The liquid before her was clear as glass as she allowed her arm to sink into the pool. Luz could see her fingers begin to change. One at a time, in a matter of moments, they became minnow little fish. As she felt about beneath the place her grandmother's feet ought to have been, the minnows swam together and became something else. Suddenly, Luz felt compelled to pull her arm from the paralyzingly chilled water, and when she did, her newly human hand held the still body of a very large frog. Taking it from her, the old woman laid the frog in her palms and placed her thumbs on the center line of its body. Shak shanom, she said, and plunged her thumbs into the frog's belly, splitting it in two. Eat, she commanded, as she handed one half to Luz, who struggled to contain her amazement. But it is not cooked, Luz said. How will I eat if it is not cooked? Put it into your mouth, child. It is what we have come to do. Eat of this uncooked life which you have caught with your own hand and I have killed with mine, and you will see what it is to see here. Do it quickly. I am too old to be standing this long in icy water. 
Luce obediently raised the cool frog flesh to her lips and timidly sank her teeth into the softness of the little creature's body. She held what she had bitten off gently in her mouth, and images began to glide into her mind. Pictures of cavernous spaces and fires in circles, of men and women dancing naked in the firelight. Before a single man, who stood in the center of one fire, unburned by the flames, holding an enormous frog in his hands. This is the beginning of what we know, he chanted. This is the end. The flesh in her young mouth melted. She swallowed. Three more bites. Tastes of wood pulp, bitters, bile, smoke, a waxen texture. With the last bite, she trapped a piece of something stone-hard between her teeth and spit it into her palm. Her crone-bent grandmother, watchful as a hungry owl, snatched the object from the child's hand the instant it came to rest on innocent flesh. She glared at it as she held it to the light. This you must never consume, she intoned, shaking her head and waving her left hand over her right in a continuous figure-eight motion. This she produced not words, but a ghastly burbling sound in her throat. These things are not for those like us. Luce bent close to see what it was the old lady insisted was not to be partaken of. There, in the time-wrinkled cup of her palm, lay a tiny perfectly formed bone. Encircling the fragment was an impossibly fine etching of a crocodile. This is not the bone of the frog, sounded the hushed voice of the old woman. Those bones will enlighten and protect you. This, this thing is a bone that comes from here, and with that she pointed to the next-to-last joint on Luz's little finger. This is the bone of a child, a small one like you. She almost wailed the next words. To consume such things is to become a slave to evil. With that, she raised her hand and cast the pale omen of lost humanity back into the depths of the pool from which it had risen. Sunday, 1829, GMT plus 8. As they passed through the lobby of house, Avi gave Coordinator S direct sat cell number and a set of encryption codes to reach him at any time. Coordinator couldn't tell if this was simply micromanagement by the secretary or a minor indication of just how interested the committee must be in the information they expected her to gather. When she started spending a lot of time at central committee meetings, she leased a small apartment in a local collective building just off the Hua de Campo and not far from St. Michael's Cemetery, a favorite spot for the occasional calm moment. As she leaves house, she heads that way, admiring the view of Monchi Fort just up the hill, giving herself a few moments to clear her head. Some things she'll need are stashed at the apartment, so it's a quick overnight, and then time to move again, back to the VTOL port for the reverse of the journey she has just taken. Maybe somewhere during the afternoon she'll be able to find some time for Vigno Verge and Pastage de Bacalao. For now, she strolls down the densely populated avenue, drinking in the heady bouquet of sensation that is modern Macau. She reflects on the history of the place apparent in the present. For a brief while in the 1940s, Macau enjoyed immense prosperity as the only free port in Asia, welcoming an incredibly diverse group of entrepreneurs and war profiteers. Crime had been the principal export product and backbone of the island for nearly half a century. Until the handover to China in 99, 80%, modestly estimated, of the gross income of the port and its adjunct city stemmed from gambling, prostitution, racketeering, and illegal export trades. Back then, being a home to fugitive outsiders was an ancient identity for Macau. Anything that rang of intrigue, any plot or action that exuded the inbred stench of corruption could root itself in the accommodating soil of this snail of rock, even before the Portuguese laid claim to it in the 15th century. Coordinator waits at a stoplight. Skyscrapers, casino towers, and administrative edifices, grand and beautiful enough to rival their counterparts in Hong Kong or the Philippines, struggle to assert their individuality, to claim their Macanese identity as a brand of their own. 
The light changes and coordinator moves off, realizing that since the collective movement established its headquarters here, Macau has flourished. The vigorous political wing of the world's unified but autonomous crime outsourcers has vividly enhanced the economic fortunes and prestige of Macau around the world. Not only that, but the diversity of people at this crossroads is greater than ever. It never was about assimilation, coordinator thinks to herself. Globalization, conglomeration, dominion, whatever. But never assimilation. She stops to rifle through a street bin of used books. One of her passions since childhood has been the written word in print. Old-fashioned paper pages soothe and refresh her tangible contact with the earth in a way that the binaries of textbooks cannot mimic. The only text documents she owns are essential engineering volumes whose sheer bulk would take up too much shelf space than she cares to sacrifice. Coordinator's building presents a grand colonial facade, slowly sagging towards compost under the weight of relentlessly wet heat, just like hundreds of other buildings in the area. The neighborhood is beautiful, but a preservationist nightmare. These days the money goes into new construction, not restoration. History is worth more if it takes up less space, and the Chinese government is not exactly interested in preserving the colonial legacy, after all. She mounts the steps to her door and presses her palm against the sensor. Other folks here have optic readers. There are even some old-school key slots. For her, the reader she installed when they bought the unit is as new as they come, sensing not just her palm print, but whether or not her chemistry validates her identity. She doesn't rely on the character of her neighbors. Each time she enters this living space, Coordinator is astonished at the strong reaction she has to seeing the accumulated detritus of her own life's coming and going. The foyer, apart from the bang-flash unit sunken into the hall ceiling and meant to debilitate unwanted guests, represents a chapter of her life she would label ascetic. Ultra-modern furniture, the square, stainless rod and sculpted synthetic residue of a creative epoch, dominated by a focus on the austere, stands in clusters at various spots and along the walls. Here, several chairs seem to push at each other, as if uncomfortable with their own proximity to like objects. She keeps them near the door now, because their brittle modernism makes her uncomfortably conscious of her own tendency toward rigidity. The way they're placed, she feels that she has to pass between pillars of her own past in order to enter the present. She speaks the systems up. Odd, she thinks, how an idea mutates, gradually growing a direction of its own. Things that grow like this can end up a long way from the intent of the person who at some long-ago moment had the original idea. What lay in the room before her, splashed, stretched, sprawled, rolled, pasted, pegged, pinned, and hung from every possible point of attachment, were the contents of her textile collection. What she had meant to be an elegant gallery space had matured and transformed itself into an organically imperfect miniature cloth bazaar. Han embroideries from the 5th century splay in wilted streams of gold-bound yarn atop massive woolen scrolls of prayer rug. Pakistani caravan bags hang on walls obscured by the mandalic cipher of a Moroccan curtain. Streamers of raw silk, ikat, salvaged from the guido, swirl up, rising like worm smoke in the pillow wood. She stops in mid-stride and collapses onto a sprawl of enormous Turkish footstools corralled into the shape of a rude daybed. I love the smell of this place, she thinks. I don't care if it's a disaster, I just don't. As her orderly mind urges her to at least sleep in her actual bed, she defiantly kicks off her shoes. She looks through the door opening into the vault of a stainless modern kitchen, remembering that at least the refrigerator is orderly. It's empty. With that satisfying thought, she falls into a sleep unmolested by concern for schedules, details, or any of the other plentiful administrative trivialities of daily life. Dream time. Luz saw the sound before anyone heard it. It seemed to come directly from the walls, a low-frequency red mist seeping into the blackened space, fogging the air. Listen! She whispered to her companions, interpreting the vision as a sound, although she could hear nothing but the roar of a distant ocean in her ears. It's coming. 
From where he sat cross-legged on the floor, Kali found himself drawn back from the dimly lit hallucination of the altar and those things that lay upon it. He sat squared against the wedge of stone that braced him at both shoulders. He heard it now, too, emanating from the hallway. It flowed into the room and seized the space, occupying every element of the void as if it might displace even the air by its sheer volume. He felt the need to hold his breath so as to seal himself against the vibrations of this all-pervasive sound. Do not move, Luz said, her tone strictly meant to be obeyed as a warning against it. You must stay where you are and not move. You will find your place in the cycle of things, but if you move toward it... Answer watched the red mist infiltrate the room. He could see the others now, their blood coursing through them. A warm amber pulsation in the corner marked Kali while Luz burned a translucent lime yellow. Her words were on the same wavelength that carried the low moan, but they appeared as blocks of vermilion rather than red fog. He saw the fog saturate Luz's body, and for an instant, witnessed sitting in her place an enormous horned owl. The owl rotated its head, seeming to stare directly at him. Then the bird was gone, and Luz reappeared in its stead. The tone, increasingly close, grew even louder. With each passing second, it grew deeper, less sharp, but somehow more chilling, and then stopped. They were alone, sitting in a dark, empty granite box. It was, for the moment, as it was the very first time they had come, as if there were no objective, no sacred herb ingested, no search underway, no promise of discovery or threat of the same. No one spoke. A common thread of expectation sewed them together as they sat in the empty absolute of silence. And then, a shrieking scream resounded, converting the labyrinth of uncountable stone bronchi that constituted the lungs of this ancient temple into the resonating mucosa of an undulating throat. They sat in a closed circle, hands joined, legs crossed, eyes tightly closed. They had not moved to come together like this. It was how they found themselves placed when Jaguar slid syrup-like through the portal. Its enormous feline body entered the tight space at a loping run that looked like stillness. Raising its massive fanged head, the impossible feline padded around them, sniffing the air, no longer red with the scent of its approach, but burnt umber with the saturating fact of menacing presence. The close darkness of the igneous room was now alight in a fierce tangerine glow. Answer felt a pulse, but he could not distinguish it as his own. This jaguar was the same as the one he and Kali saw in the Redwood Canyon, he realized it was not a coastal cat, for its pelt was covered with the pelagic model of jungle cats, or leopards. Kali saw it, but no remarks or synthetic intellectual observation about this fact attended his observation. He sat purely present in the moment, neither capturing nor discarding anything, just residing in it as the long-fanged predator paced them in circles. Luz felt the tide of blood surge in their common body, sensed the rising temperature of the air, and smelled the fetid stench of stale blood and feces that clung to the jaguar's pelt. All these things were clear, but she experienced them as if a remote onlooker. The circle held. Cat leaned toward Answer's face, whiskers like many slender tongues seeking the scent of fear, his muzzle nearly touching the nape of the boy's naked neck. You're not as soft as you appear. Cat's words leaned into their unfilled mind with high volume and clarity. As before, you are not food. What am I to do with you? Without hesitation, a single word, spoken by none, rising from all in the center of their circle, resonated through the stone room with a tone that reminded them of the feline, serve. Without moving, the huge bulk of the cat somehow moved. It released a curling scream, and that shook the very rock. 
In a singular flowing act, the spotted feline rose and shot around their circle, rising slightly with each circling pass until its body was a blur. It ripped past them in an encircling flight that left its long-clawed paws whirling above them at shoulder height. Then the curdling scream again, that had until that moment only seemed a menace, transformed, became words, whose tone and rhythm took on the musical incantations of a timeless chant. Alone among the ancients, I am willing. Alone among the willing, I am able. Alone among all, I will defend those who are unafraid of me, align my power with them against their enemies, and favor them with my protection. All who know me in this way are safe within me, yet if they use me ill, I will consume them. I will bring you to my brethren among the ancients, the eagle whose wings and wisdom transport me even now, the snake whose knowledge has been lent to me as power. I promise this. Then, nothing. No shadow, no sound or sensation, neither gain nor loss, only emptiness where abundance had been. Its final words spoken, the feline blur of color and scent that rushed above them in a living vortex collapsed into countless particles that rained down on the trio like a fine ashen powder. The transcendental light illuminating the room shrank back by degrees until the Galleria de Ofendras had fully regained its timeless, dark menace. Monday, 8.16, GMT plus 8. Coordinator leaves her building and walks back down to Hua de Camp, hailing a jump cab as she gets down to the street. Cabby looks Chinese. Do you know where I can get really great minche? She asks the back of the driver's head. They are sweeping toward the greater downtown and she's hungry. Hey, what you know about minche? The cabbie is testy. Fucking high roaders come in looking for style points. Coordinator leans toward the voice box. Listen up, she says irritably. You can either tell me you know something about minche, I mean hot, world-turning, earth-shaking minche, or drop this shitbox at the nearest open spot and let me find somebody that does. While you're at it, get me to some chilcote sinceraduro. The last thing I want to hear about is some half-assed Macanese shit talk about high rotors. You got that? Oh, you say chilcotes? The cabbie is trying to shift gears and save a fare that might just pay him to wait. Maybe I got you wrong, Gaijina. He makes up his mind. I got you spot. He drops the cab like a stone into Weon Chan District and lights in front of Billy Chan's Haloon Typhoon. Not a great part of town, but he has the feeling this woman can handle herself. For my money, lady, best they got. He hopes she tips good. By the time she finally gets there, the port is a hive of activity. The bay's surface is crisscrossed by the outsized pleasure craft of super elites, fishing vessels, sampan and junks, cargo vessels, the remains of the Imperial Chinese Navy, as well as a steady stream of hydrofoils that skim above the harbor chop like leggy aluminum water walkers. Every four minutes, foils depart for Hong Kong, Kowloon, or the mainland. Fleets of VTOL ships headed straight up and out to points around the globe leave a screed of contrail lace hanging in the sky. The frenetic movement of this place gives her the feel of an Escher nightmare. Whichever way you head, it seems you might end up trapped, perennially traveling in sweeping arcs around East Asia. It's the anonymity of a city life transformed into geometry, individuals offering themselves up to a system that sustains them as it absorbs their energies, heaving them forward, hell-bent on some future or another. Coordinator maintains, at a significant personal cost, several travel identities equipped with executive access chips. This expense allows her the considerable luxury of bypassing most of the security and associated hassles of modern distance travel. The exchange is a simple one. She pays an agency an outrageous sum of money, and they maintain a background check profile on her several identities for the International Aviation Authority. The readers at VTOL ports simply scan her chip, verify that she's pre-screened, and pass her through. She looks out the cab window at the congested ball of commerce sliding by below. Class A identity pre-board, 
She muses to herself that this is only the latest in an unending string of technologies devised to further stratify human beings by economic class. But then, the history of that goes back to the invention of poverty. It would be a very long trip indeed to unravel that story. Alternatively, with the number of hours she spends moving from place to place, it may well be worth the expense of finding out. Coordinator smiles at the idea of using the conveniences of a system you don't believe in to gather the free time necessary to pull it apart from the inside. Sometimes collectivism itself seems like nothing more than a stupendous tangle of ironies. The new port is built in a majestic series of quarter-app shells facing southwest. In the distance, the bridge to the mainland looms against the sky, its dual spans lurking low above the horizon like cantilevered bands in a cement rainbow. Everything in this part of Macau is reclaimed land, as is about three-quarters of the town, including Kotai City, bridging Kolani and Taipa. The only real way to tell where the island itself is anymore is to look for the tallest buildings. Those skyscrapers still have to be anchored in solid rock, so if you look carefully, you can still see the natural geography of the place insinuating itself into the man-made environment that covers the Earth's natural skin like a flexan armor suit. As she walks through the outdoor checkpoints on her way to the VTOL suites, Coordinator curses the oppressively moist heat of Macau's early summer. It's probably only around 32 degrees, but stifling humidity weighs everything with the slow-motion damp of the oncoming monsoon. From one kind of wet into another, she grumbles to herself, anticipating her imminent re-entry into the very different but equally oppressive rainforest wet that is the Pacific Northwest. We will be back next week with Chapter 8 of Criminal Magic. Thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please leave a review or tell some friends about this podcast.